0: Now, here's
1: your host, Dr. Kevin Folta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast where we talk about contemporary issues in uh, agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology. I'm Kevin Folta, and today's Talking Biotech Podcast is a real special one because I had the opportunity to speak to somebody right here on campus. And one of the most exciting things about being on a college campus or major university Campus is your access to experts. And it's not always... Uh, it's pretty cool that I can walk down the street and be sitting with a leading breeder of, a, of an important plant or uh, someone who is the world expert in their area of history. But with a really great medical school, you also have access to the people that are shaping the frontiers of the next wave of therapies for some of our most important diseases and the types of long-term developmental disorders that are occurring more and more as we live longer and fail to perish from mundane sources. So today's talk, I was speaking with Dr. Dwayne Mitchell. And Dr. Dwayne Mitchell is the co-director of the Preston A. Wells Center for Brain Tumor Therapy and the director of the UF Brain Tumor Immunotherapy Program. And he's a professor in neurosurgery and... um wonderful source of information. I think you'll really enjoy today's podcast. I wanted to put in this slight prelude because I wanted to get his title right here. As you'll hear through the podcast, I didn't get it right. I kind of showed up unprepared. Um, we, I, we've been on the calendar for forever to do this interview. And when the time came, I had a million distractions, ran across campus and forgot my notes. So he had to do his own introduction, which is kind of Bad form, <laughs> but but it was a wonderful interview that I think you'll really enjoy. So now to the interview with Dr. Dwayne Mitchell. I am here today, and actually at University of Florida, just walked across campus. I'm here with uh, Dr. Dwayne Mitchell, uh, and you're a professor and director of what's the name of the uh, center?
3: Yeah, so Duane Mitchell, I'm a professor in the Department of Neurosurgery and also a co-director of the Preston A. Wells Center for Brain Tumor Therapy, and as a, in a research capacity, direct our immunotherapy program within the Brain Tumor Center. And that's
1: why I was so excited to talk to you, because immunotherapy has become not just a Almost a buzzword on the tip of many people's tongues that it's become a very promising new alternative potentially or new therapy that can work well for different cancers. And at its core is this idea of using molecular biology and other types of biotechnology to kind of reshape the way a cell thinks and responds to um, cancer therapy, or maybe I should leave that, leave that definition to the expert. No, no. So what is, what is immunotherapy?
3: So no, that was, a, that was actually a, a very accurate summary. Um, really, you know, the concept that the immune system could recognize cancer cells as foreign and lead to a rejection from the body uh, has been a, a concept that's been in science for actually over 100 years now. Um, very early on pathologists and surgeons who were observing cancers that were taken out of patients, oftentimes under a microscope could see that there were immune cells infiltrating, Uh, These tumors. And so the hypothesis that perhaps this was the body trying to fight off those cancer cells uh, was born. And the field of immunotherapy or cancer immunotherapy really uh, comes out of the realization that obviously in a patient who's developed cancer, their immune system has not effectively eradicated those tumor cells. And cancer immunotherapy is attempting to boost the immune system in such a way that it now recognizes those tumor cells as something that doesn't belong in the body and effectively, leads to their rejection. And so there's a lot of approaches that people have taken to trying to elicit these types of responses. And as you mentioned now, really over the last five to 10 years, we've seen some remarkable advances in engaging the immune system in a productive way in patients with cancer.
1: Okay, so maybe there's maybe a couple ways we could break this down. But is one of these ways taking the existing immune system components like say t-cells okay. and giving them new instructions or is it something like uh mobilizing i think the other half of this is mobilizing things like viruses mm-hmm. to become basically weaponize them against cancer are there more than that
3: well there there are um a number of approaches uh and you've highlighted two i think of of what I would call one of the, two of the more contemporary approaches that have really shown some significant advances in the clinical setting, I think we, we broadly um, think of immune therapies as perhaps putting them in a few buckets. One of them, which has been around for a long time, is something called cancer vaccines, where you're trying to present the antigens in a tumor cell to the immune system in a more effective fashion. Uh, the other, as you described, is something we would call adoptive cell therapy, where you're actually harnessing immune cells from the body Modifying them in some way and typically expanding them to very large numbers, like T-cells, for instance, and then giving back or adoptively transferring these immune cells back to a patient. So that that's called adoptive T-cell therapy. And you highlighted genetically engineering as a way of using molecular biology to even engineer those T-cells. To be more effective at fighting cancers, or to recognize those cancers, and that's been a uh, a particularly effective approach in some uh, malignancies such as leukemias and lymphomas. Uh, another approach uh, is something called oncolytic viruses, or using viruses that have been modified uh, so that they either <coughs> only infect tumor cells and infect and kill those tumor cells directly, or often what we think may be occurring is these uh, these oncolytic or modified viruses may uh, kill a few tumor cells, but also trigger the own patient's immune response to become more effective or awakened in fighting those cancers. And then there's even another category, which is using monoclonal antibodies uh, to actually <coughs> engage specific signal pathways in the immune system, uh, such as uh, something called immune checkpoints, which are essentially you could think of as stop signs or red lights in the immune system, that actually tell the uh, T cells to stop attacking <coughs> stop attacking tissues. That's what we want when you want to prevent autoimmune disease or you want to prevent chronic inflammatory responses from causing harm to the body. But often in patients with cancer, these stop signals are essentially an overdrive where they're shutting down an effective immune response. And we now have drugs that essentially block these uh, stop signals called checkpoint inhibitors. And these have also shown dramatic clinical responses uh, in a number of patients with cancer. So as you can imagine, within these buckets, you can then start getting into combinations of approaches. And so we're really just at the beginning stages, I think, of seeing a a whole new era of cancer immunotherapies that will be coming forward to uh, attack these cancers from a variety of uh, avenues and using a variety of approaches. And I guess that the variety of approaches really boils down to the idea that cancer is not one disease, Right. That is correct, so in, a, in one of the things that we have certainly learned through the advents of genomic technologies and the uh, molecular biologic understanding of cancer cells is that. Even two patients with the same diagnosis, say, uh, I work in brain cancer, and if we look at two patients that have uh, the most common brain tumor, uh, malignant brain tumor in adults, glioblastoma, even though they pathologically have the same diagnosis, we know at a basic and molecular level, these tumors are very different But from one patient to another. And even more challenging, within a given patient, these tumor cells are quite different even from one another. So if we're going to have a a treatment that can deal with this heterogeneity, we actually have to have something that can tackle this complexity and deal with the fact that tumor cells are different uh, molecularly from one another and often change, and they're different from patient to patient. Um, Fortunately, our immune systems are used to dealing with uh, molecular complexity. If you think of the number of viruses, bacteria, and other pathogens that we have to be prepared to to defend against in a very specific way. Uh, our immune systems are hardwired to deal with that kind of uh, complexity. The trick is now going to be leveraging that uh, uh, capacity against cancer cells.
1: And when you go back to the uh, basic buckets, say the five buckets of different types of, of, of
3: therapies, when did the first ones really roll out? Yeah, so, if so the history of cancer immunotherapy is quite an interesting one. Um, and. If we, were, if we were to use as a benchmark the first FDA-approved cancer immunotherapies, uh, we would really be going to uh, 2010 where a cancer vaccine against prostate cancer uh, called Provenge uh, um, by a company, Dendrion, was the first really uh, immunotherapeutic intervention that was shown to prolong survival in a large randomized phase 3 trial and meet the burden of FDA approval. Um, and so but the, so that's really an uh, uh, important benchmark in the field. Uh, since then, we've seen a number of approvals for immune checkpoint inhibitors, these antibodies mm-hmm. that, that block the brakes on the immune system. And really, over the last five years, we've seen uh, probably the, the largest number of advances in terms of FDA approvals coming out of that category of immune therapies. Um, and we're beginning to see the first wave of uh, adoptive T-cell therapies uh, maturing in terms of phase three trials and potentially coming up for uh, uh, FDA approvals as well, either from early phase, uh, uh, earlier phase trials or definitive phase three trials. So uh, that's that's the history of approvals over the last really seven years. Uh, but the histories of clinical trials and clinical approaches, as I mentioned, that dates back. Almost as early as the initial observations of immune cells being present in cancer, we've had a number of uh, scientists and physicians who've been uh, evaluating uh, the ability to enlist immune responses in clinical trials over the last several decades.
1: So some of the ways in which we uh, typically in this podcast, we talk a lot about genetic engineering right. and the ways that we use the tools of modern molecular biology to solve complicated problems for people. And I guess a couple of these therapies, particularly it's um, probably the uh, T-cell Enabled therapies and also the um, virus, mm-hmm. um, what, what do they call this one?
3: On- oncolytic viruses. Oncolytic
1: viruses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These are really seem like the two big areas and, and monoclonal antibodies too, I suppose, that are manufactured. But these seem to be the major ways in which, th- which they are engineered. And what are some of the features say of, of either the T cell or the viral oncolytic approach that involve aspects of reengineering a virus or a T
3: cell to now target cancer? Absolutely. So I I can talk some about uh, even approaches that we're using right here at the University of Florida that are taking advantage of molecular biology and and genetic engineering approaches to attack cancers. So one of the um, limitations that we have in uh, having the immune system engage uh, tumors in a, in a specific way is that the number, the sheer number of tumor-specific T-cells that are circulating in the body can be limited, limiting. Um, if, in terms of comparing the, the, the mass of tumor cells that may be present in a patient with cancer, one simple hypothesis is that if we could generate a large enough number of tumor-specific T-cells, uh, that these T-cells could tilt the balance of the immune system in favor of rejection. Well, one way of doing that is if you have a target that you know is expressed in those cancer cells, is to actually genetically modify the T cell with a receptor that is now very specific for that tumor antigen. This has been done a number of ways, but one uh, uh, common and effective approach is to use uh, a surface-bound protein that's present on the on tumor cells, and to generate an antibody receptor that actually an antibody that actually recognizes those proteins. But now to link that antibody recognition, which can be very high affinity and very specific, with the signaling domain of a T-cell receptor. So these are called chimeric antigen receptors. They essentially bring the best of recognition from an antibody with the signaling and killing capacity of a T-cell receptor. And now you overexpress this chimeric antigen in a T-cell population, essentially turning any T-cell that expresses this chimeric antigen now into a tumor-specific and very potent uh, cytotoxic T-cell response. And so this approach uh, of what people call CAR T-cell therapy essentially redirects the population of T-cells to now be specific for a tumor target, and you can generate in a relatively short period of time very large numbers of tumor-reactive and tumor-specific lymphocytes that can have very potent killing uh, capacity against tumor cells. And this is just one of the approaches that we and others are evaluating uh, as a way to redirect the immune system against brain cancers, but this can be done against really any tumors where you have an identified target to go after.
1: Okay, that's really cool. So let me unpack that a touch just for the audience that, you know, you you might have have lost a couple of them there. But um, the basic idea is that you have uh, cells that are Tumorigenic or cancer cells that, have a, that present a specific like, protein on the surface. So, kind of a signature that says um, that's consistent with a cancer cell morphology. And, um, and they have these surface antigens that now you can use as a target that if you can find something that would attach to, or attach to them or maybe uh, recruit a T cell to them, almost like a lock and a key. Mm-hmm. So, you got a lock on the tumor cell, you got a key on the T cell. And it matches, and and then the nice part is though is that it's not just a key that t- turns the lock. When it turns the lock, it excites the T cell to become um, what would be the word? It mobilizes it to t- uh, a killer T to be a killer T cell. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and destroy the cell. Right. And so this is it's a. That's a, it's, and this is a more and more common therapy, right? Like for
3: leukemia, I think is this very is successful. Remarkable uh, effectiveness in some leukemias and lymphomas, and uh, we are at the early stages of evaluating these approaches in solid tumors. There are some uh, additional challenges when going after solid tumors that we're seeing, but I think this is an extraordinarily promising approach, and in fact, uh, one of the most potent approaches we've seen for being able to, to harness the power of the immune system against cancer. Well, this
1: is really exciting so far. So uh, what we'll do is we'll take a break here and then we'll come back on the other side and talk a little bit about the viral oncolytics uh, area. We'll talk about some of your work and some of the promise for the future. Uh, It sounds great. This is uh, the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're talking with Dr. Dwayne Mitchell and we'll be back in just a moment.
2: Today we offer a PSA. Not the PSA test, but as you'll see, that ain't a bad idea either. You see, your host has enjoyed a lifetime with a happy colon. But when you hit a certain age, physicians request preventative measures to ensure the fidelity of that chunk of the alimentary canal. Now, Kevin, have
1: you ever had any symptoms or problems? Well, no. <laughs> and in fact, you know, I thought the test was a waste of time. I mean, I've always had a great diet, lots of exercise, no family history, and never any symptoms either. Uh, my large intestine has worked for a half century in complete darkness and wasn't sure that putting a light up there was a good idea. Uh, I hated to lose the two days of work between the prep and the test and it seemed like a huge hassle to have to have you, you know, drive me there and then drive me home. Well, you went anyway, so how was the prep? Well, drinking gallons of laxatives, it really was no big deal. Just couldn't wander far from home, I loads of laundry done. But the test itself was absolutely nothing. They knocked me out, I woke up, everything was fine. But why did you ask me to
2: bring it up here?
1: Because they found six polyps. And one of them has a rather chunky adenoma, and that means it's tissue that could have been problematic down the road. And see, certain types of colon cancers begin with these kinds of polyps, so they removed it. No big deal, I don't even notice it. And then I got to see the insides of my uh, body are a funny baloney color. So you're okay now? absolutely no effects at all and in fact now that i'm a few grams lighter i think i run and bike a little faster but the important news is that preventative measures are important and effective and at the end of the day it's no big deal
2: so there you have it right from the horse's rectum talk to your health care advisor today and get a date with that camera on the end of a noodle it beats suffering from the potentially deadly disease. And now back to
1: the Talking Biotech Podcast. And we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're sitting today with Dr. Dwayne Mitchell, who's a professor and director of the, I should have wrote this down before, I'm sorry, uh, director of which program is it? Here? Uh,
3: the UF Brain Tumor Immunotherapy
1: Program. The Brain Tumor Immunotherapy Program. I should have, you know, I should write these things down. It's nice because you walk, if I'm at home and I'm on the computer and I'm talking to you via Skype from you're in England and I'm here, I get it all exactly right. But I walk across campus, I carry a thermos and glasses. Okay, so. What I'd like to do in part two is talk a little bit about this viral viral oncolytic method and then talk about what's happening here at University of Florida because it's a cool place and and I'm glad that you're here. This is really exciting to know this is happening in my town. Um, So... Uh, viral Oncolytic kind of stole the spotlight on this a little bit last year with the 60 Minutes special. And yep. yeah, this is the group from Duke who uh, was showing efficacy by rearming specific types of viruses. And that was kind of the sexy part. Here we are taking viruses like poliovirus and kind of reprogramming them to attack cancer cells. Yes. Could you tell us a little bit more about either that work and kind of how it works and then maybe other ways
3: in which the same approaches are being used? Absolutely. So the premise behind uh, u- using viruses to attack cancer cells is that we know uh, when a vi- many viruses, when they replicate inside a cell, the way that they spread from cell to cell is they actually kill the infected cell and release the progeny of viruses that have been incubating inside that cell so that it can effectively spread neighboring cells. And so the concept behind this is if you could uh, re-engineer a virus So that it's specifically replicated in cancer cells and not normal cells. You could essentially use the natural uh, lytic or killing uh, process that viruses uh, induce when they burst out of a cell to now kill tumors. And the initial uh, efforts at this were to uh, engineer these viruses, and there have been a number of different viruses that have been engineered uh, to have this type of specificity. Herpes viruses, measles virus, polio virus, many others. But the idea now, if they have been uh, uh, genetically modified so that they can only replicate and kill tumor cells, you could really have a very specific uh, uh tumor targeting um, uh, approach, but now take advantage of what viruses have figured out how to do very well, which is spread inside the body. What we've learned from evaluating these approaches and others is that uh, there's an aspect of this that also engages the immune system so that when these viruses infect tumor cells, As you can imagine, they are recognized by the immune system uh, even more rigorously than the immune system recognizes tumor cells. So in addition to this killing of the tumor cells, you're also getting this sort of awakening of an immune response, which can spread to not just limit the virus, but actually... Uh, target additional, even uninfected tumor cells as well. So these viruses really, I think, combine sort of a, a, a two-mode approach to attacking tumors, directly killing them through their infection and spread, and also waking up a dormant immune response or even initiating a new immune response that can uh, can go on to kill even tumor cells that aren't infected. And this has become, a, again, a very exciting uh, and promising approach to treating brain cancers uh, and other cancers. We've had an FDA approval for this type of approach in the treatment of melanomas, um, and it's currently being evaluated in a number of other cancers as well.
1: Wow, it's really exciting. I think really kind of the interesting part too is just the weird irony that we're mobilizing these viruses that have been our enemies, that now we're or we're teaching them to work for us, which I think is so cool. And, and why didn't we use more benign viruses? Is it just because they don't have the capacity to seek and destroy like these do? Or?
3: Well, you know, um, you've heard the saying kind of what, what's, uh, what's old is new and, and vice versa. Um, you know, again, these are concepts uh, that have actually been around in the medical literature and in the thought of scientists and physicians for many, many, many years we've just realized that it oftentimes takes uh, a long time before we understand enough about the basic biology to really direct these observations in, a, in an effective and concerted manner. So in fact, uh, the there was the observation that patients with cancer who sometimes got infections after the surgery to remove their tumors uh, oftentimes did better than uh, was expected in that Uh, Their remaining tumors or tumors that were at distant sites from where they had surgery sometimes would shrink in the context of the patient getting an accidental infection, say, during the course of their hospital stay or shortly after the surgery. These early observations um, led many surgeons and scientists, again, almost dating back over 100 years ago, to propose that an infection purposefully introduced into the tumor microenvironment could perhaps elicit an immune response uh, that could eradicate cancer. And so there were many experiments tried for dating back decades ago to purposefully induce this type of response, uh, but we didn't have the molecular biologic understanding to engineer, you know, what I would call maybe more smart viruses, uh, that that specifically replicate in tumors. So, it's great to think that these breakthroughs came about in the last five to ten years. But in reality, they've been built on decades and decades of, of observations and experimental approaches by physician scientists for many many years. Uh,
1: that's, that's it's really cool. And it just was just seeing the this kind of uh, therapy, especially for something like glioblastoma, which has such a limited spectrum depending upon its severity and its presentation how it can even be approached just having something that's essentially a molecular knife that can go in there and do the work is is groundbreaking and what about the other approaches that we were discussing earlier and maybe we could focus on what your laboratory does and what what you do and
3: some of the things you're evaluating What what's the most exciting one sure so You know, we know with um, brain cancers in particular, one of the challenges that we face is the anatomical location in the central nervous system. So on the one hand, uh, we know glioblastoma and other malignant brain tumors tend not to spread outside the central nervous system. uh, And so we know where we're trying to target our therapies. But at the same time, there's some challenges to getting uh, uh, drugs and other treatments into the brain. And, and to reach these uh, tumor cells that can oftentimes be hidden behind a blood-brain barrier. So one of the approaches that we have been uh, focusing on is using the T-cells of the immune system, which actually can traffic into the central nervous system and can find these hidden cells, uh, trying to arm these T-cells at being able to better traffic uh, into the CNS mm-hmm. and to localize the tumors um, that have invaded various aspects of the brain. Um, one, of the mo- one of the more exciting findings that have been made out of uh, uh, laboratory scientists, research scientists here in our program, is that while these T-cells can traffic to central nervous system tissues, uh, we can actually enhance the ability of these T-cells to find brain tumors through either engineering them with uh, receptors that allow them to more efficiently uh, migrate to the brain, or in fact to co-infuse them with stem cells that have a really good capacity to home to tumors, and these stem cells can actually talk to the T-cells and kind of guide them around the brain and tell them where to go. And so this has been an approach that we're very excited about, uh, combining stem cell therapy and adoptive T-cell therapy, almost as a guide, you can think of it as the stem cells guiding these T-cells more efficiently on how to localize and find the tumor. And we found in our preclinical models that this really leads to a much more efficient rejection of central nervous system tumors, and we're now just at the beginning stages of bringing that forward into clinical trials. So I think there's a lot we still need to learn, um, but there's also a lot we have learned that we think is promising for more effectively fighting uh, tumors that exist in such a challenging compartment as the brain.
1: I kind of have to go backwards a little bit. So you're putting them in with stem cells, which You know, stem cells have have not differentiated yet. You know, by definition, they are these progenitor cells that have no real defined fate yet. But somehow they're smart enough to tell a T cell where to go.
3: Yeah, so uh there's a a scientist in our group, Dr. Catherine Flores, who uh, began her work as a as a postdoctoral fellow. She is a uh, stem cell biologist by training and became very interested in what hap- what you know, what is the fate of hematopoietic stem cells when they are uh given to a uh, a host that's recovering, say from chemotherapy or radiation. One of the interesting things that she found is that these uh, uh, stem cells, in addition to going to the bone marrow where they normally go, we've known that these cells are also capable of responding to sites of injury and inflammation. And it turns out they migrate quite efficiently uh, to central nervous system tumors based on some chemokines that these tumor cells secrete. What was probably the surprising observation is that not that these stem cells can home to tumors that has been observed in other settings, But when they localize there, they are particularly effective at attracting T-cells. And so when we treat uh, uh, tumor-bearing animals, for instance, with T-cells that are tumor-specific alone, they have some efficiency in migrating tumors and leading to their rejection. But when you do this treatment after uh, tumor-bearing animals have received stem cells, we can get a markedly increased number of these T-cells. Uh, and they co-localize to wherever the stem cells are going. This is a specific chemokine receptor interaction that we've worked out, but it really shows that the, these stem cells tend to be smart at re- finding areas of disease in this case. We think probably of inflammation or injury. And then they recruit other cell types into the environment that can, in this case, assist in the immunologic rejection of those cancers.
1: Well, that's really interesting. Now, is that is that a So we're talking about stem cells which have been either cultured and then added back to the body, but does the body naturally mobilize its rather finite stem cell populations to do the same thing?
3: So this has been described, in, uh, uh, for instance, in severe sepsis, myocardial infarction, traumatic brain injury, something that's referred to as emergency hematopoiesis. Okay. It's thought to be a very uh, early response that stem cells undergo a proliferative, uh, uh, capa- increased proliferative capacity and also push out uh, a large number of myeloid progenitor cells, presumably to respond to inflammation, tissue damage, and repair. Uh, it's been a little bit less described in the spectrum of de- uh, developing cancers, although not, not uh, completely uh, uh, undescribed. And whether or not in the normal physiologic state, these cells that are pushed out are contributing towards tumor rejection, tumor repair, uh, or the persistence of cancers is still something that uh, we're just beginning to elucidate. But we found that when you combine the capacity of these cells with specific Uh, Cancer immunotherapy—they can be quite potent in enhancing the immune response—and this is one of the things we're very excited about bringing forward into the clinic in a new way.
1: That's really interesting. I mean, as a guy, I'm very interested in stem cells. I've worked with them my whole career, but also root cells and leaf cells. But uh, I have to throw that in. uh, But here's another question, though: Is that you're saying that uh, there's chemokines? So there are molecules that are secreted by the tumor cell that, um, for whatever reason, but they're being used to kind of, in this case, the stem cells are exploiting that to guide them to the tumor cells. Is there any move to maybe put uh, the same kind of chemokine receptors onto things like T cells or other types of immune cells?
3: Absolutely. And in fact, we have, uh, uh, in, the, in studies we published a few years back, looked specifically at chemokines that were secreted from glioma cells and the chemokine profile of activated T-cells, uh, chemokine receptor profile in activated T-cells, to try to find opportunities to do exactly what you described, specifically exploit a chemokine axis that might more efficiently allow T-cell trafficking uh, to, uh, in this case, uh, malignant gliomas in the brain. And so we have identified uh, uh, some chemokine receptor axis, uh, in particular receptor called CXCR2, which responds to a number of different chemokines that are secreted at high levels from glioma cells and shown that activated T cells really don't express very high levels of this CXCR2 receptor, but if you genetically engineer them to express this receptor, they uh, can now respond against chemokines that are secreted from the glioma uh, uh, tumor cells to more efficiently traffic uh, into the central nervous system. And so this would be an an additional way of, of engineering T cells ex vivo to now be able to more uh, efficiently respond to to the chemokine axis that uh, that would allow them to guide them home to. Does each tumor type have a different chemokine profile? <laughs> it's a great question. Um you know it, the we know that these tumor cells secrete a variety of chemokines and that's been described to know whether for instance particular molecular subtypes of let's say brain cancer now that we know for instance a given uh, brain tumor is really uh, subsets of molecularly defined uh, uh, tumors. Whether they have unique and consistent chemokine profiles really hasn't been well worked out. And we also know that our treatments that we deliver can modify this. So when you give, a rad- give radiation, which is a common Uh, treatment for malignant brain tumors, this will alter the chemokine, as you can Mm -hmm. imagine, the chemokine profile and response of those tumor cells. Chemotherapy may as well. So systematically understanding, you know, what chemokines are produced at what time and during during what spectrum of normal treatment is still something that requires uh, quite a bit of additional work. Um, But we think there are opportunities to do that kind of profiling and then perhaps more intelligently figure out how to engineer cells to be more efficient in reaching these uh, central nervous system tumors.
1: Well, very good. So what about other things that are happening in your laboratory and, and here at University of Florida with respect to other
3: types of therapies? Sure. So I think there's a couple of things that, we're, that are uh, you know on the horizon and that we're excited about and a few things that we're, we're already evaluating in clinical trials. So one of the, I think, nice things about the uh, program here is we do have a preclinical discovery laboratory effort all the way through. Uh, early phase clinical trials and have um, uh, currently ongoing uh, a phase two clinical trial looking at adoptive T cell therapy. Uh, These are for children that have a particularly difficult tumor to treat, uh, medulloblastoma, that has failed standard treatment. So in that trial, we are actually using the genetic material taken from the tumor cells from these children when they undergo surgical resection, and using uh, RNA isolated from the tumor cells to prime an immune response against tumor-associated antigens, and then expanding T cells to very large numbers for those patients and treating them uh, in conjunction with salvage uh, uh, chemotherapy treatments. That's an ongoing uh, multi-site study that we, we hope to be wrapping up over the course of the next year. Uh, In the laboratory setting on the horizon for new treatment approaches, uh, we have an investigator here, Dr. Elias Sayer, who's been working on uh, replacing some of these cell-based therapies with nanoparticles that have been engineered to deliver tumor antigens and immune modulating agents to the host without needing to harvest immune cells and expand them to large numbers in the body. So he has shown in uh, preclinical studies this looks very promising and equally effective. Um, and we have just launched, in collaboration with the Veterinary Medicine School here, uh, a clinical trial that will actually look at canines, uh, pet dogs that have developed brain cancer, um, as being the first subjects that will undergo this nanoparticle based uh, uh, immune uh, therapy treatment. So that trial just opened, and we're looking forward to seeing if we can induce immunologic responses and clinical responses uh, in, in dogs that have developed spontaneous brain cancer. And we believe that if, those, if that trial looks promising, we'd be moving that into clinical application in the near future as well. Um, and then I mentioned to you the stem cell-based therapeutics. Uh, we're now looking at the use of stem cells in combination with T-cell therapy uh, as a way of enhancing the efficacy of adoptive cell therapy. So there are a number of things on the, on the horizon here uh, that have either entered the clinical arena already or, are, or will be in the next year or two that we hope uh, will bring you know additional opportunities for patients with, uh, with this difficult disease.
1: And so the nanoparticle-mediated therapy is really a way to introduce the antigen but, without doing it in uh, so we have other so uh, I guess, as opposed to doing something like uh looking at the resident antigen on the on the uh, tumor cells right yes
3: yeah, so so we have uh, we and others have used for instance um, dendritic cells, which are really the antigen presenting cells of the immune system. We know these are the cells that are ultimately responsible for presenting antigens to T cells in the body. And one one method for trying to increase the efficacy or the efficiency of that is to harness dendritic cells from patients, load them ex vivo with tumor antigens, and re-deliver those dendritic cells back to patients. Uh, we have use that approach and are actually uh, have ongoing phase 2 clinical trials evaluating that approach currently. But as you can imagine, all of these cell-based therapeutics are very complex. They require a pharmaceutical-grade, essentially clinical laboratory to handle these patient cells, and they're also very expensive to do. So the idea of using a, a, a particle, an nanoparticle formulation that could package these tumor antigens and deliver them to the antigen-presenting cells directly in the body... Uh, it would be a much more readily available off-the-shelf way mm-hmm. of trying to engage the immune system. And we can also engineer those particles not just to deliver an antigen as a vaccine, but to actually deliver proteins that modify the host immune response, so address some of these checkpoint Uh, inhibitor pathways or engage in some of the adjuvant immune activating pathways. So these nanoparticles can carry both a tumor antigen as well as an immunologic modulating uh, protein uh, that we think can be very effective at steering the host immune response towards tumor rejection. So those are the approaches that we're bringing just into uh, the veterinary medicine uh, evaluation this coming year, and then we hope to see soon in clinical application in the future. Okay, so
1: before we call it quits for today, could you kind of uh, dare to look into the crystal ball here? I mean, we've dealt with, um, we, we know so many people who suffer from the most insidious forms of these diseases, and brain cancers being especially uh, horrible, um, I, you know, so many personal stories. Uh, but what is the prognosis and if you were to look ahead say 5 10 20 years do you think that we'll have some good remedies for at least a subset of these types of disorders
3: It's a great question so as you mentioned um you know the outcomes currently for patients uh with either high grade malignant brain tumors in the adult setting or in the pediatric setting for relapsed uh, uh, high-grade brain tumors, you know, the prognosis for these patients is still extremely poor, with an average survival of less than two years from diagnosis. Uh, You know, at the same time, we've seen this wave of enthusiasm and interest about immune therapies and their promise for treating very difficult-to-treat cancers. I think we're now coming up on the reality that this is true for many solid tumors, But in some cases, it's maybe a third of patients or less that are benefiting from this first wave of new, uh, if you will, immune therapies, particularly for solid cancers. So as we look over the next 5 to 10 years, what I I think we're going to see is we are going to see a subset of patients that respond to, you know, what I would call single modality immunotherapies. Some of these, uh, whether it be checkpoint inhibitors... Adoptive T cell therapies or other immune oncolytic viruses or other immune modulating approaches, but that's going to be a, a defined subset and I think and hopefully in brain cancer we will see also this defined subset of patients that respond. Where I think the future is going is, is we need to understand what's happening to that other two-thirds of patients in some cases that are not responding, what are the mechanisms of resistance and how do we overcome those mechanisms of resistance either through combination approaches or through conditioning approaches that alleviate these uh, you know, roadblocks to effective therapy. I think we're seeing some of those uh, uh, promising experiments. And hopefully, uh, over the next five years, these combination approaches are going to increase the number of patients that benefit from this subset to an increasingly and ever increasingly larger proportion of patients. So I'm very hopeful and excited about the opportunities coming forward. But there's definitely going to be a lot of work to do uh, in order to reach those benchmarks.
1: Well, thank you very much, Dr. Mitchell. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time here today. Um, If anyone wants to know more about what you do and maybe your program, could you direct
3: them to a website or maybe a place to learn more? Uh, So, yes, if people would like to get more information about our program, uh, they can go to braintumors.ufhealth.org. That will take them to the Preston A. Wells Center for Brain Tumor Therapy website, and under the Research tab, they will see the UF Brain Tumor Immunotherapy Program.
1: Okay, thank you so much for your time today. Best wishes going forward, and I'm so happy that you're here on our team. Thank you so much. Excited to be here, and thank you. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science.